Hi everyone, welcome to the FGC Paris podcast, where we explore intersectional feminism through literature. We're back! We took a bit of a break in October, but back now with a vengeance, got some great guests lined up for you, including today's guest, who is Sutanya, an American in Paris, from the Dinner for One podcast. So a couple of weeks ago, Sutanya very kindly invited me to her lovely apartment in the 18th arrondissement of Paris, which for Sutanya is definitely the best arrondissement in Paris. She cooked me a meal, um, starter, main, dessert, um, I brought some red wine, I perused her bookshelves which are just gorgeous and have such a fantastic selection. We talk about juggling cultures, um, Zatanya's mild Zadie Smith obsession, um, the true Paris expat experience. And of course, some of Satania's favorite books. So yeah, this, this is our chat from a couple of weeks ago. Um, I hope you enjoy. Bye. Hi, Satania. Welcome to the FBC Paris podcast. Hi, Lou. Thanks for having me. <laughs> I'm really looking forward to our chat. Um, I think for our listeners, it would be really helpful if you could just tell us briefly how you ended up in Paris mm. and what your relationship is to Paris okay. here and now. Okay. So um, I guess a little introduction about myself. I am a Jamaican-born, Bronx-raised, Bronx, New York City, raised um, American expat, currently living in the best arrondissement in Paris. Um, and I'm a podcaster and the host of a podcast called uh, Dinner for One. Um, I came to Paris for love. Um, I was married to a Frenchman that I met at a bar in New York. Um, unfortunately, we, we divorced, but that's life, c'est la vie. Um, but then I found myself staying um, for a deeper love and unexpected understanding of myself and the kind of life that I want. So here I am. Wow, thank you for sharing. And, you know, I feel like there isn't just one expat experience mm -hmm. of Paris. So where would you say you are, I mean, you live in the 18th arrondissement, a.k.a. the best. The best. <laughs> um, just, yeah, just briefly, what are your impressions? What would your kind of big takeaways be to where you've gotten today? In terms of how I feel about the city? or Yeah, and your place in the okay. city as, as an American. Mm. Um, how I feel about the city, how I feel about Paris, how I feel about France in general. So I... I'm not one to, you know, France has a history of being a colonial power, and that's not mm. something that I would ever try to apologize for or minimize. A lot of damage has mm. come with comes with that kind of a history. For sure. Um, however, my experience in Paris is that I feel that Paris and, and, and France as a whole, as a country, from my lens, is quite easy on the soul. And when I say that, I mean that there's such a strong social security net here that the basics will always be covered for. And, 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 and then to speak about Paris specifically, there is something joyful about living in a city where even if you live in a small apartment where you go out every day and you're, sur you're surrounded by literal beauty, mm. like everything that was created, that was built in the city was for someone's visible visual 
visceral pleasure. Mm. And there's something calming about that. Yeah, that whole idea of the bon vivant, yeah, exactly. all the experience yeah, exactly. and the interaction. Just even walking around and looking at the buildings and the way the streets are set up and sitting on a terrasse and watching the people walk by and sure yeah, that idea of being a flaneur with someone that's enjoying their city and surroundings it's made for pleasure yes so i think on that sense it's uh, easy on the soul um, the other side of that it's a, it's not a fairy tale um because you have to make it your own you have to learn to speak french mm. i would recommend if you are trying if you want to live here to integrate into french society mm. which is a whole other battle in and of itself takes time yeah, it takes time and energy yeah um and it's hard being away from your home, your culture, your family, your friends, people that know you like the back of their hand. Um, but in my opinion, for in my experience at least, like until today, this point in time, it's been worth it. Um, and it's also, I think, allowed me to grow and think and develop a, a, a sense of self Mm. A stronger sense of love outside of what it could have been had I stayed in New York and been influenced, even if it was subconsciously, by my family, my culture, my friends. Yeah, so. I completely understand that as another expat mm. from mm. a little bit closer, mm. <laughs> obviously. But mm. um, yeah, I identify mm. with mm. a lot of what you say and also mm. that idea of building upon a home mm. that you already know mm. and kind of having to make mm. your own mm. and I, I feel like one of the things i love about my expat experience and i think a lot of my friends who live in paris can attest to this maybe mm. i don't know but, <laughs> um you have to be alone you have to sit with yourself a lot mm. and that makes you think and at least for me at least it made me think and it made me um analyze and it made me touch on a on a uh, a deeper sense of myself than i i think that i ever would had have i would i ever would have had i been in new york and had li be living that new york life with my family i wouldn't have to, i wouldn't have had so much time by myself no or you would have almost kind of not gone through the motions yeah, no, but there would have been less to question right 100%. and also the thing about being less bad is like you're always observing right mm. like you're always Like, what are people saying? Like, what does this mean? Mm. Like, culturally, like, what is this tied to? Mm. Like, I'm always asking myself questions and my mm. friends' questions, my French friends' questions. Mm. I'm always in the observer role. I'm never just, sure. as you said, going with emotions. Yeah. So that's also, yeah, something that I've appreciated and realized um, with this experience. And that, yeah, I think sometimes does get left out of yes. the expat narrative. Yeah. So it's a very, very um, interesting insight there. Um, we are here to talk about books. <laughs> uh, I'm in your apartment and just have obviously one of the first things I did was take a look at your bookshelf. <laughs> um, for our listeners, um, it's very impressive selection. Um, so Merci. I think we can. <laughs> no, I mean not like I am the you know uh, judger and keeper of books, but. Um, So some kind of uh, books that we've done in book club, actually, or some authors that are kind of very well loved. So um, it's always nice to meet a fellow book lover. So we're going to talk about a couple of books. How would how would we kind of, not that we have to fit things into a neat little box, mm -hmm. but 
what do these kind of books generally mean to you? Um, how would you define them? Um, because I obviously asked you yeah. to pick titles. Yeah. So yeah. where did you go with well, that? Deja, they're mostly fiction. Yes, I'm with you. I'm very <laughs> yeah. team fiction. And I, this is a very recent kind of like, I guess, realization about my book choice, my book choices uh, and the authors that I like to read and the stories that connect the most with me. And I tend to like books that delve into some other aspect, some like, not other aspect, but like the, in my opinion, like the real, like dirty, naughty, complicated parts of being a human being Mm. and personalities and just like living in this world, especially in today's age where everything on social media is so like pretty perfect you know like yeah. I'm showing you the highlights of my life right and, it's a certain yeah. part of exactly. someone's life exactly. that they're choosing to show but right you have so many people that take that as like la verite like this is it like this yeah. is this person is living this perfect life mm. in paris in new york in london in wherever mm. in the you know the apartment next door to me <laughs> um and even for me, I'm susceptible to that, you know? Oh, and yeah. I think everyone is. Yeah. It kind of taps into everyone's exactly. kind of anxieties. Exactly. And, and it's 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 refreshing for me to read these um, stories of messy people that are mm. trying to figure it out. It's reassuring. Right. I'm not the only person that's like, fuck, can I say fuck? Yeah. Uh, I'm not the only <laughs> person that's like fucking it up sometimes. Yeah. You know, and I, I do feel like even if, even if, you are an author and you're writing fiction it's coming from somewhere yeah it's not completely made up there may be some aspects obviously of the story that are made up but either you read something you know someone you live something someone mm. in your family lives something um it's a whole yeah, kind of mix exactly of, that's yeah. coming through in the story that you're trying mm. to tell um yeah and i find that quite reassuring and i also like and i don't know if it's my divorce that helped me go th- realize this or my um, just growing up, you know, being 35, and like <laughs> living. Yeah. Um, you don't, the only person you can really know is yourself. And even then, that's a constant growth and it's a constant um, learning experience. I don't know the people that are around me. I mean, I know them. I know what they mm. show of themselves, mm. but I don't know them. Mm. My ex-husband, I didn't know him. Mm. I, 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 would, I could assume how he'd react based on what he's shown me. My friends, I can assume how they react based on what they've themselves that they showed me, but I'm not in their heads. No. Right? And it would be foolish of me to think that I know everything about anyone living in this world. So I think for me, fiction allows me to understand that being a human being is a messy experience mm. and also be super compassionate as well. For everyone and their stories and what they're going through. Oh, I love that you just said that because I feel like empathy mm. and compassion mm. and care, mm. not just self-care, mm. but mm. care for community. Mm. I just feel like that is such a huge thing mm. that I come to when mm. I'm reading, but mm. also that I feel like I get to yeah. see in, yeah. in this community yeah. of yeah. the book club. It's yeah. so important. Yeah, beyond. beyond yeah, yeah, it really is, you know we just had a book club discussion last night Mm. and obviously it's virtual Mm. you know since March we Mm. haven't been in the bookshop 
and it's there is an energy you know mm. and it's so nice to sometimes have that by yourself mm. with a book and then to come together and Talk have like this it. group discussion and get new ideas mm, and new perspectives sure. i can see how enriching that is sure. that makes so much sense um let's get into it i think we're gonna start with zadie oh, smith oh, right <laughs> talking about someone who kind of really thinks and writes about those details of life um i think she's a really good starting point and you've actually read um her most recent work mm-hmm. uh intimations mm-hmm. I love that title. Um, just the fact that it's almost intimate. Yeah. Um, and so these are six essays mm-hmm. that she wrote during this year, during confinement, during... Like, who could have, like, how do you even, like... I mean, like, to find the mental... Like, yeah, like, I, I got to admit, I, I was listening to um, the podcast I was, that I was telling you about earlier, and I'll pop it in the show notes for listeners. Um, it was Call Your Girlfriend. And it was really interesting because she described the writing experience during lockdown. Yeah. She was like, I'm, it's pathological, yeah. the fact that I'm a writer. Yeah. Like, she's just, this is a job. It's yeah. a work, and this is yeah. what I, I do. And I just, I found that really refreshing, and it was kind of... Um, I'm not sure I'd heard that before, mm. which is not to say that other people haven't said yeah, it, yeah, yeah. but when she said that, it kind of clicked something mm. into place for me. Mm. Um, tell us about, you know, what, what your thoughts were on these essays. Were there, what was it, what what was your kind of overall opinion? Were there certain um, essays that spoke to you a little bit stronger than others? You know, just what were your thoughts? Um, I guess the first thing was I... I think as any anyone that would read um, that would read these essays, it's they're brilliant, um, they're extremely well written, they're very timely. Um, this isn't this isn't anything that anyone I think could argue um, in terms of like technique. Mm. You know? um, so it was a pleasant read in that sense, and it wasn't too. I love the fact that it was in this you know like three hundred page. <gasps> collection about every single feeling that she was feeling during yeah. those months which i'm pretty sure Sadie smith could have done yeah the and fact that we would have read it and loved it course. but <laughs> i've just appeared down into something that i think is um with so much going on in everyone's minds kind of being pulled and pushed in so many different ways mm. it's so small it's not overwhelming it's one of the least overwhelming things that you can consume in today's day and age in addition to like you know, COVID updates, politics, what's going on next, you know, down the street from you. You know what I yeah. mean? It's one of the least overwhelming things um, that you you can consume. Um, so I appreciate it for that. So it was uh, quite a comforting yeah, read. For sure. And yeah. also, I think a lot of what, and what Zadie Smith does so well, um, is she takes such complex ideas and feelings and experiences and distills them in a way that is understandable makes you feel like less alone um there are two essays in particular one um i have some notes here <laughs> we love first, the, <laughs> the we love some notes the first one is um the second essay called the american exception mm. where she kind of delves into her i think in this one and if i'm not mistaken the last one she speaks 
she touches on racism in the U.S. and how that was kind of um, anyone who wanted to somehow kind of put on their blinders or deny that racism was a part of everything that is the United States of America sure. and every part of the system. Um, she makes it very clear and plain that it is. Mm. Um, and it's particularly in the American exception. There's a line um, where she says, um, she starts about he speaks truth so rarely that when you hear it from his own mouth, I think we all know who he is. Mm. 29th March, 2020, it has a force of revelation. I wish we could have our old life back. We had the greatest economy we've, that we've ever had and we didn't have death. And she goes through and ex you know, kind of talks about what he means by we had the greatest economy, blah, blah, blah. Mm. But then she says, then he spoke the truth. We didn't have death. And then she says a few lines later, we had unequal health outcomes. But in America, all of these involved some um, capability on the part of the dead. Wrong place, wrong time, wrong skin color, wrong set of the tracks, wrong zip code, wrong beliefs, wrong city, wrong position of hands when asked to exit the vehicle, wrong health insurance or none, wrong attitude to the police officer. What we were, complete, what we were completely missing, however, was the concept of death itself, death absolute, the kind of death that comes to us all, irrespective of position. Death absolute is the truth of our existence as a whole, of course, but America has rarely been philosophically inclined to consider existence as a whole, preferring instead to attack death as a series of discrete problems. Discrete problems. I mean, that's... Oh, doesn't that say so much about... America. Yeah. And we see it in the fact that the pe most of the people in the U.S. have died Unfortunately, I've been victim to this current pandemic we're living in. Have been black, Latin, mm. black, and black people and Latin American people. I mean, yeah. overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly. Not the only, but you majority, know, but like overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly yeah. yeah, yeah. And I just love. I mean, it's how can you, you know? Right. And, and, and the second essay that I love of hers is um, something to do, which is I think she talks. In this one, she mentions as well, kind of like the writing, and uh, yes. it's just something for her to do, and she's lucky enough to have this as a job. Yes. But then she talks about um, love, which is my topic of somewhat expertise, <laughs> <laughs> just based on dinner for one. Um, and she talks about kind of like love is something to do, but something different. And um, she goes, love with a capital capital L, an ideal form and an, an essential part of the universe like beauty or the color red from which all particular examples on earth take their nature. Then she goes on to say, busyness will not disguise its lack, like love. Mm. Even if you're working from home every moment God gives you, even if you don't have a minute to spare, still all that time without love will feel empty and endless. Um, I write because, well, the best I can say for for it is it's a it's a psychological quirk of mine developed in response to whatever personal feelings I might have, mm. but it cannot ever meaningly meaning meaningfully fill the time. There's no great difference between novels and banana bread. They're both just something to do. They are mm. they are no substitute for love. The difficulties and complications of love, as they exist on the other side of this wall, away from my laptop, is a task that is before me. Although although task is a poor word for it for unlike writing. Its terms cannot be scheduled, pre-planned, or determined by me. Love is not something to do, but something to be experienced and something to go through. 
that must be why it frightens so many of us and why we so often approach it indirectly. Mm. And as someone who's divorced and single, I see it within myself mm. and I see it within people that are of a certain age mm. that obviously are looking for love or something that resembles it, but the way we approach it is a bit like, it's not necessarily like straightforward, but it's something that we all crave and want and desire yeah. because it's something to do and it's one of the most beautiful things you can do is to love someone and give yourself to them right yeah so, and to have that and back. to have it back yeah. i think that's what i kind of really got from her writing these mm. essays was mm. i've always found her to be an incredibly honest person mm. and mm. an incredibly honest writer mm. Mm. um and i another thing that she said on the podcast that stayed with me and that i kind of feel really came through in that mm. passage that you've chosen um is she said she kind of imagined um she approached it as a kind of trust uh sorry a truth seeking exercise mm. where she wasn't necessarily writing for a, mm. for someone for mm. an audience mm. she was like what if this doesn't even ever get published mm. i'm just really looking inside of myself mm. and mm. seeing what's going on in the world mm. and i'm just going to write about mm. it and i just think that that's such a to write for no audience yes, yeah. is just so liberating yeah. and the fact that it kind of has be, has come out into the world nonetheless mm. and the fact that the proceeds from the mm. book are going to two kind of uh i believe new york or mm. u.s mm. based um organizations mm. i mean you know if you couldn't love her anymore then and if you i think i think i don't know if it was um call your girlfriend or and or she did it. She also did um, NPR? Fresh Air with NPR. Yeah. I mean, with Terry Gross and NPR, yeah. And she also mentioned that for her, you know, you had essential workers that were, you know, in the hospital. Yes. The, the grocery stores. And, and she's like, this is the only thing that I could do. Yeah. This is the only thing that I knew how to do. This is the yeah. only job I've ever Yeah, she was like, <laughs> I'm, I'm just going to do what yeah. I can do. Yeah. And exactly. yeah, she said that on Call Your Girlfriend. Again, just so, um, just so kind of honest. And I have to admit, I'm not, um, I've read a couple of her books, mm -hmm. but, you know, a long time ago. Mm -hmm. And um, she's, Zadie Smith is actually someone who I love to listen to on a mm -hmm. podcast and I mm -hmm. love to read an interview with mm -hmm. her. I just think mm -hmm. she's a wonderful person. Mm -hmm. But her book somehow I've not kind of prioritized mm -hmm. in my mm -hmm. reading or mm -hmm. for the book club. Mm -hmm. But I think you're changing. <laughs> Changing your changing mean, my mind. Just, the thing about Zadie Smith as well, I um, but she's got that appeal. Yeah, do you know what for I mean? Me, but more so than that, like I think the not more so, but the, I think the appeal comes from when I was at an age where I was transitioning from. I guess you could say like, not childish books, but I can't think of a better. But like when I was transitioning to a mature literature mm. that wasn't necessarily required reading for high school, yeah. you know, horse or class or English lit class, I discovered her watching PBS ah. and White Teeth, the televised version of White Teeth came oh, out wow. and I was like, and I'd already been a fan. I already loved um, PBS because that's where I could watch Keeping Up Appearances. Oh and my God! Hyacinth bouquet. Oh and my Death, God! You Death, know yeah. Hyacinth bouquet. Of course, that is it's hilarious. Bouquet. Yeah, <laughs> sure. <laughs> and Desmond's and oh like yeah. God. 
pork pie and all that stuff. So like I always love. Oh, I love this. Yeah, I always love PBS. So, like, okay. Then when I saw and I, when I saw, the show and then also how she brought in her Jamaican heritage. Yeah. That was the first time I ever seen it on screen in that kind of nuanced way, and I appreciated it. Um, and it wasn't something that was about um, reggae or the stereotype, stereotype that all Jamaicans smoke weed or like we all mm. run fast or like you know like oh, dreadlocks. Wow. You know, mm. like it was cultural stereotype. Exactly, yeah. it was this true kind of yeah experience. In an experience where she had a Jamaican mother mm. and a white father mm. living in the UK. Um, what is what was her experience mm, like? And, yeah. Um, and also like the other immigrant stories and Iqbal and all that stuff. And I really appreciated and I appreciated the way it was written. I appreciated it was portrayed on screen. And so since then, and but that's not to say I haven't. I've pretty much read everything that she's ever written, but <laughs> I, I haven't loved. I anything. can see from the bookshelf. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't. Well, that's, I, I, don't, I, I don't think that's okay. Autograph, like you know, yeah. the books that I haven't. Yeah. That I just didn't like. Right. You know? Um, so I'm not, you know, I'm not completely biased, but yeah, she is a writer that um, I appreciate for the reasons you just said, her honesty, mm. and also I just feel, um, yeah, I, I've met her, <laughs> like, woo, <laughs> and not like, you know, one on one, but like I went to her uh, one of her readings here mm. in Paris and. Um, I didn't bring my book because I'm a dumb dumb, but my friend, <laughs> one of my friends, Hannah, did. And so Hannah went to go sign it. And I was so ner- I was like, I was so nervous. And I had planned this in my head, like all this time, like what I was going to say to her. And I, I, I got there and my friend Hannah was there and I had this, this a lump in my throat. Like I felt like I was going to cry. Wow. And then yeah. Hannah, because Hannah's English. Mm. She's from London. Mm. So Zadie immediately picked up on her accent. Yeah. And they were having conversation. I got really jealous. I'd hope she didn't go to like whatever cool dinner she had planned in Paris after and be like, I, and so, you know, and said to her, I just met this really weird. <laughs> You've spoken there about kind of, you know, cultural stereotypes, mm-hmm. which we, I think we can probably say tend to be very lazy. Mm-hmm. And it's, it must be frustrating mm-hmm. to keep seeing. I mean, I think we also know this about Paris. Mm-hmm. Uh, you see kind of lazy, lazy stereotypes being perpetuated mm-hmm. about the city and a particular mm-hmm. lifestyle. Mm-hmm. Um, and the city is so much more complicated and multi-layered like, mm-hmm. than that. Um, it makes me think of another book on uh, your list, which is How to Live a Jamaican which I've been wanting to read for ages. Um, and it's a short story collection. Mm-hmm. And um, the author, Alexia Arthurs, is also of Jamaican heritage. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, I was listening to a podcast with her. And basically her aim in this short story collection was to show the diversity and the richness of life in Jamaica above and beyond those cultural stereotypes that people have, mm-hmm. which are great food, mm-hmm. um, high crime rates. Bob Marley. <laughs> Bob Marley, yeah. right? You just said yeah. another one like yeah. uh, they run fast. Yeah. Um, so maybe you could explain a little bit about your personal relationship with Jamaica, mm. uh, which is part of a part of your heritage. Mm. And maybe what these stories kind of brought to mm-hmm. you, like any kind of insights mm-hmm. or just what you loved about mm-hmm. it, um, what it raised for you. So 
I mean, I was born in Jamaica, and I lived there until I was four years old. Um, and I moved when I was four years old. I moved to New York City with my family. Um, but I don't know if this was a conscious thing that my parents did, or they did it because it was easy for them. Mm-hmm. But they would send me back to Jamaica every summer, oh. every every pretty much like school holiday. Wow, I was back in Jamaica. And you um, loved that. And I loved it. Right? Because I, I had a freedom that I didn't have growing up in New York City, like with my cousins and running around and hanging out with my cousins and like their friends, all the neighborhood mm. kids. We would just kind of like roam around the neighborhood and yeah. someone would at some point would ask us if we ate lunch and we would say oh. no and they, someone's mom or grandma or something would feed us. And to this day, I, I spoke to one of my cousins a couple um, months ago. A lot of my cousins that I grew up with, grew up with, would spend time with in Jamaica, they studied whether in the UK or in the US or so a lot of them have kind of have become, oh, sorry, that's again, me. Have become a part of the Jamaican diaspora. Okay. Um, and whenever we talk, I talk to them. We always go back to talking about when we were younger and like, do you remember this mo- this person or this person's mom was so mean or this or how's this person <laughs> doing? Or, oh, this person moved to the UK or this person's in the US now or this person, you know. So, so the shared, yeah, shared history, it's kind yeah. of strong, maybe mm-hmm. nostalgic mm-hmm. link, which I think Alexia 100%. also talks about. And um, also, I think it's um, because for such a small country, the cultural impact that Jamaica's had on the world mm-hmm. I, cannot be denied in terms of music, yeah. in terms of if you go to London, a lot of the slang is very tied to yeah. Jamaican patois, the Jamaican dialect. Mm. Um, if you, Jamaica is one of those rare countries in the world where everyone knows, right? And as a result, you have those lazy stereotypes. And like you said, what I appreciated about this book is, I think in the title, especially like How to Love a Jamaican, is to love all of it, mm. all of the Jamaicanness that comes with that person all the complicated history yeah. around racism, around colorism. People forget that Jamaica was a slave was a slave colony. It was a colony yeah. of, of the British. Yeah. There was there was slavery there, and that mm. that, that has historical and, and repercussions. They were brought over yeah, they were brought as well over. to the yeah. UK as exactly. forced labor, and then as forced labor, and then now with the Windrush scandal. We're not going to go into that, but the Windrush scandal. Yeah. I mean, very you know, re- 2018, right? Yeah. Um, so how to love a Jamaican is to love every aspect of that and everything that comes with that. And I think she, in all of her short stories, um, she illustrated mm-hmm. the complexity yeah. of being a part of such a visible culture while mm-hmm. no one really understanding it unless you are Jamaican. Right. And there was one essay in particular that I love. Well, there were two. <laughs> one that, um, I forgot the name of it, but it was about the... You had these two, sorry, these two Jamaican women of Jamaican descent that met at university. One um, was from the West Coast, and her parents were quite well to do, and her mom was a professor or something, or whatever. Mm. And she only went to Jamaica maybe once or twice, but she kind of 100% identified with American culture. And yeah. Jamaicanness was like on the back burner. Whereas the other, her friend, who was also Jamaican, grew up very entrenched in Jamaican culture, being yeah. born in the country and then moving to the U.S. at an older age and then being in New York City so surrounded by a lot of Jamaicans, the culture was very much a part of who she yeah. was and seeing that difference and how there was a bit of judgment from the more like full Jamaican. Yeah. Kind of like half Jamaican. I mean, I can see that in myself. If I, if I were to meet someone who was of Jamaican descent that told me they went there one time, I would... 
I would feel sad. Yeah. Because they too would also be susceptible to that stereotype of what Jamaica, being Jamaican really is. Yeah, they don't have the luck and the opportunity yeah. to know their yeah, own culture, yeah. right? It's really it's kind of that. Yeah. I think that's, yeah, she spoke about that. That seems to be quite um, um, a, a common chapter because yeah. I think it covers a lot of um, things that people mm. can I easily identify mm. with, even if you're not um, of Jamaican descent. Yeah. You yeah. could be from, you know, Nigeria yeah. or anywhere. Yeah. Um, and I think this, I feel like there's something like Kelly Rowland in the title or there's some kind of Beyonce's oh, yeah. child. I yeah, just, it always like kind of yeah, speaks yeah, yeah. to me. Um, I think something, you know, that I felt a little bit whilst I was researching um, the the fabulous books on your list, just to go back to Zadie, mm. but also uh, um, Alexia, who, who we've just been talking about. There's this, you know sense of home and identity like in Alexia's case she talks about um leaving Jamaica mm. with her mother at the age of 12 mm. and how she was actually an undocumented mm. um inhabitant of the U.S. Mm. Uh, for another 12 mm. years mm. until she was 24 mm. and she talks about this um this kind of pressure that she puts on herself that as a Jamaican who doesn't live in Jamaica mm. she somehow thinks am I Jamaican enough or am I not Jamaican enough? Mm. And I'm going to like link that to uh, something that Zadie said on the podcast as well about home, because mm. as we know, and for the benefit of our listeners, uh, Zadie Smith is, you grew up in the mm. UK, a mm. uh, British Jamaican, mm. um, and has, has lived in New York mm. since I think 2010, 2012, mm. teaches at NYU. Mm. And when the, um, lockdown happened in New York she came back to London mm. and that was we were talking about this offline mm. and and she she said that was the first time that I understood where home really was mm. for me because mm. it was London mm. and as much as I love New York mm. I actually want to be around the mm. corner from my mum mm. when mm. something like this happens mm. do you have more than one sense of home because you know home can be more than one mm. place um you were in Paris for mm. lockdown. Mm. Um, you kind of have that experience of going back to Jamaica mm. when you were a kid, having yeah. those memories, knowing mm. that culture. Mm. Um, I, 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 th I believe as well, um, still living that culture mm. even when you mm -hmm. moved to the US. Mm -hmm. Like, how, how would you say, because there's more than one experience, mm -hmm. basically, is what I'm trying to keep mm -hmm. uh, reminding. So... How was lockdown for you in Paris with your family far away? Mm. And how do you kind of connect and make space for all of your kind of cultural identity without having an identity yeah. crisis? <laughs> well, it was, um, I, for not for one second, wanted to leave Paris to be in New York City. My wish would have been to have my entire family here with to me. bring them to yeah. Paris yeah I, not, I understand not for that. once that I ever wanted to be in New York mm -hmm. um because I've created a life for myself here and a space for myself here that feels very comfortable and feels very mm -hmm. much like me yeah and I feel very safe here um so that wasn't a question in terms of my different identities in home um I've never once questioned um my sense of Jamaicanness for me that's the foundation and that's the core yeah. 
And at the end of the day, you can strip away everything else. But my values, the core of who I am, is I'm a little Jamaican girl. Because, not only because I was born there, but because my who my parents are, because of yeah. the family I grew up in, because of the values they instilled in me, and because I think I went back so often. Yeah. And I don't, I don't feel like I have to choose. It's mm. always just an addition that makes up kind of like the fabric of Sutonia. So I've never had, I've never had that question or that problem. I am as much Jamaican yeah. as I am American, as who knows if I end up staying in France. You are French as I will now be French. and adopted yeah. until you get the pay, yeah, the nationality. Like the nationality. So for yeah. Sure, like, you know, if I end up staying here, mm. I, I don't know where life will take me. I would no. love to stay here, but if I end up staying here for like the rest of my life and yeah. if I'm lucky enough to have children one day and my children are French, obviously like, I will become even more integrated and great in society. Yeah. And for me, it'll just be an, another part of me specifically and yeah. my identity. Yeah, it's an, be, yeah, it's an, abu- it's yeah. an extension yeah. of, it's an enriching yeah. kind yeah. of, I'll yeah. I'll be lucky enough to be able to pull from my Jamaican-ness, my American-ness, my yeah. French-ness to create a home that resembles something that is comfortable mm. for me and hopefully something um, that whoever my future partner is will enjoy and bring what their culture into as well yeah. and my children if i'm lucky enough to have any will grow up in and be a product of that and hopefully yeah. be great global citizens and yeah and we'll speak so many languages all and the languages yeah, <laughs> like just world domination basically yeah. is what we're going for here hello uh, fantastic <laughs> um thank you for that um kind of yeah just generous response um it's it's lovely to hear mm. especially in a year which is very difficult for mm. a lot of people where mm. people are far yeah of course you know from from family and that can throw up a lot of feelings of so another author on your list who um we have a connection to mm. for sure at, the, at shakespearean company and the book club is chimamanda ngozi adichie i just want to say her name because Chana. she is so joyful <laughs> um so actually the first book um, mm. we did at book club in Shakespeare and Company mm. with Dear Ija Willie mm. so that manifesto mm. um, I think my general feeling and actually like this afternoon I was lucky enough to have a, a, an extra hour mm. and I I reread some I reread some of my favorite stories mm. in uh, The Thing Around Your Neck mm. so you chose her third novel mm. Americana which mm. I just yeah. like wow um and I feel like probably a lot of our listeners have read. Mm. I know that um, she has been translated mm. into a lot of languages, mm. Mm. which again, I feel kind of cements her mm. appeal. Mm. Um, she's very eloquent. Mm. Um, she actually kind of came up um, in the book that we just read for September in book club. Um, and she, you know, uh, we read feminism. Feminism Interrupted mm. uh, by a young black mm. uh, British mm. um, feminist, mm. Lola Ulufemi. Mm. And um, Chimamanda comes up in kind of a, a mainstream feminist context mm. because, you know, uh, We Should All Be Feminists mm. ended up on like a Dior yeah. t-shirt. Beyonce, Beyonce used yeah. her in, in, in a song. Um, and... You know, basically Lola was tying this into feminism, being like, well, it is important to mm. have these entries mm. into feminism. It's mm. not that they are perfect and mm. they can't be critiqued, mm. but, you know, 
when you think about who's been in academia, mm. uh, mostly white people, mm-hmm. white male people, mm-hmm. after white women, mm-hmm. um, you you know that's not going to do it for everybody. Yeah. That's not going to be representative of everybody. Um, so, um, you have to name the problem mm-hmm. is like one of her mm-hmm. big arguments. When did you read Americana? Like, what did it do for you? I read, the first time I read Americana, I was really young. I, yeah. I was well, like it came, in my 20s. Well, because it came out 20s. in 2013, I think. Yeah. So it was her yeah. third yeah. novel. Yeah. So in my early, so I must have been, uh, in my, it was definitely my 20s, like mid-20s. Yeah, like yeah, yeah. I um, have a similar yeah, kind of memory. 26, 27, yeah. something like that. I was still working in New York in advertising. I remember oh, that wow. Much. Like branding, I remember that much. Um. And for me, what I what I loved was her um, illustrating how, what it was to be a different type of black person in the U.S. Because as a Jamaican, even though I was, if someone saw me on the street, mm-hmm. I'm obviously like a black woman. Mm. But there was another culture when I went home. I ate different foods. Mm. Like for example, I don't I don't think I had I didn't have pasta until I was like in university. I've never had pasta. Before. My mom never made it. I never had pasta. I mean, it's okay. You know, hey, I, I, you know. Yeah. Now I love it. Yeah, I'm sure you've made it <laughs> yeah, for I've lost a, time. Yeah, a lot, maybe too much. <laughs> but it's not like but you were yeah. eating badly. Yeah. No, I wasn't eating badly. No, no, of course not. Um, but for example, things like that, mm. or um, I just love. Yeah, I just loved the way she articulated the experience of being. Um, a black person in a country like America where blackness for a lot of people means one thing. Mm. You had this other culture at home and you were juggling these two cultures within a culture because Mm. being black is being black around the world. You know, Mm -hmm. being black is being black and you understand what that means very quickly as as the main character did in terms of discrimination, in terms of um, being viewed as other and different you understand very quickly. Mm. Um, yeah, like one could say that's yeah. a fairly universal, yeah, universal black experience. But that said, mm. outside of that, when you go back to your your specific black culture, and mm. black foods, whether that is Caribbean, whether that is you're someone um, of, that is from the continent of Africa, mm. whether you are black British, mm. it's so funny. Do you know... Um, I always pronounce mispronounce her, her last name. I'm sorry, but Bim Amawinde, she was she was a writer for the Guardian. She's also the host of the podcast um, Thirst Aid Kit, and she's a producer for My This American Life. Oh yeah. She's yes. based in the U.S. and she talks. Oh, she has she in a few episodes. Um, I've listened to a few of her brief podcast episodes. Yeah. Where she speaks about the experience being a Black British person, right? The US, especially when she traveled around the South. And how okay. different that was for her in terms of how people accepted her and things like that. And the other thing about being someone who's black but not African American, which is very, um, frankly, disgusting and mm. um, divisive, is you're considered like in American culture, at least. And you know, maybe someone might disagree with me. I don't know, um, but I, I, I think that uh, any black person that's listening to this, whether they they are American. African American or of the Black diaspora, mm. um, will hopefully agree with this. That if you are African, like from the continent or Caribbean or any kind of other Black, you are considered like 
a good black or acceptable black in the U.S. because we don't have that history of American slavery or American segregation with you because you're from another country. You're from Gosh. another place where, yeah. you know... That, the, you don't have yeah, that history. You don't have the specific American history. There was right, you have another history, yeah, of course. There's colonialization. There was colonization. Yeah. There was classism there. There was racism yeah. there. Africa it's, too. Yeah, continent yeah, that's Africa. not... Yeah. I'm not going to say Jamaica's a utopia. It's not. No, no, no. But, but it's we don't just have the American. The problem looks different, and we don't have the American version of it. So, yeah. like, kind of, you, we are considered in some like which creates black, this which horrible hierarchy. It is, yeah, it is the epitome of conquer and divide, and it's terrible. Ooh, yeah, and it's also yeah. that patriarchal mm. colonialist um, attitude of 100%. like, well, we decide the rules. We 100%. decide who is good, who is bad. Um, and I, yeah, and I love the way Chimamanda um, put that. So, yeah, put that in black and white. That experience yeah. of, of 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 understanding what it's like, of realizing yeah. that you're black, and like what she, that means from an American lens, an American context. It's like she really understands humans, and she gets 100%. humans, and she knows how to write those experiences and write them for mm. other humans. So. Satanyu, thank you so much uh, for your insights, for sharing your experience, for sharing some of your kind of most loved um, reads. Just thank you so much for your time and your generosity and your honesty. Thank you for having me on. It was a pleasure. Merci. Thank you. <laughs> thank you for listening, everyone. Hope you enjoyed this episode with Satanya. Make sure you're subscribed. Um, feel free to leave us a comment. Let us know what you thought. Um, head to the show notes to get all the links uh, so where to follow Satanya on social media how to listen to her podcast some of the books and articles are referenced during our chat take care speak soon bye